Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. I can only think of a handful of people I've met who seem to sail through their careers, rarely upsetting anyone. But others, like myself, well, we can find ourselves disagreeing or upsetting someone often inadvertently all the time. I think this is how most of us go through life because very few people relish a disagreement. But my next guest argues learning how to disagree well is a skill, and I thought it would be helpful to find out how. Tim Duggan describes himself as an author, advisor, and an optimist who believes in the power of business to do good. His first book, Cult Status, I still use as inspiration, and his second book is Killer Thinking, How to Turn Good Ideas into Brilliant Ones. In this episode, we discuss how to disagree and how to create a great work culture. Tim, perhaps we should start with you telling our listeners where you are right now. I am coming to you right now from the beautiful Spanish island of Mallorca. Um, It is a gorgeous island where I am very lucky that my husband and I are able to call this place home. We moved here about six months ago after a very long and storied journey to try and get here. But living on the Spanish island of Mallorca is pretty amazing. It's something I've always wanted to do. Let's talk about leadership. You've published two books, which are just excellent. You know, I, you know I'm not making that up because I wrote to you as soon as I picked up a copy of Cult Status and said, this is super important and brilliant piece of work. And also you, you do a, a newsletter. One came out last week titled Half Time, which I sent to my whole team, 23 Lessons from Life, which was absolutely terrific. So what I wanted to concentrate on briefly is one of the themes of that newsletter, which was how to disagree respectfully, because this is about giving young women in the middle of their leadership journey as much tangible assistance as we possibly can. And I think disagreement is one of the toughest things to learn. So can you give me a bit of context around how you came to this conclusion? And we'll go to some of your advice around it. Of course. I am very fortunate to be in a really wonderful position right now where I no longer have a gazillion staff to have to lead. So I kind of call myself, I'm in this half-time period where I feel like I've done the first half of my career, which was building a business, selling it, and now I've kind of stepped onto the sidelines a little bit. And there's something really wonderful about being on the sidelines, taking a career break if you can, even just taking a long holiday, taking long service leave, whatever it is, once you've been chugging away for 15, 20 years. 
And as part of this, I um, write a regular newsletter and I just really get time to think about my journey and speak to lots of other people. And as part of that, I love drawing out lessons. I really enjoy kind of helping people. And so the halftime lessons was a bunch of thoughts that I'd had about the rough and tumble of business and being a leader and managing people and all of those things. And one of the pieces of advice was that in order to become a better leader, become a better human, become a better husband, all of these things, you need to learn how to disagree well. And it's one of those things that no one teaches you. You um, learn by doing. Um, It's one of those areas that no one enjoys. Conflict is not natural to humans. We are conflict avoiders. We spend our time really trying to think, think how can we make other people like us. And yet when you have to disagree with somebody, you have to be clear and learn how to do it well. So there's a bunch of things that I've drawn on um, for this. One of them is some advice from, um, I get most of my advice from very smart women. Um, Brené Brown um, is one of the smartest women that I think I listen to and adore. Uh, and she often says, and I, I use this all the time in work, in business, sometimes I talk to my husband, he gets annoyed when I say it. Um, she's got a really wonderful saying, which is unclear is unkind. And you are being unkind to somebody when you're being unclear to them. And so if you have to learn how to disagree well, you have to be as clear as possible as you can. And there's another um, in some of her sayings as well that she, um, the really simple way when you're disagreeing with somebody is taking the language away from you. So you've done this, you're doing this and making it I. And a really simple way of reframing that is often, and I do this myself, is using a phrase, what I'm hearing from this is. And you're taking it away from that person. You're taking it away from the instant arcing up of your back that happens when someone says, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that. And they're saying, well, what I'm hearing is that, and then you go into explain kind of whatever the, the problem is. And it's a really simple reframe that I think is important um, in learning how to disagree well with people. I um, would add to that, Sam Mostyn, um said at a, probably one of the Future Women events, when she disagrees, now you're talking about someone who's on multiple boards and is constantly in the inner sanctum of politicians and policymaking and would disagree a lot. She said she often says, oh, that's a really interesting perspective, but have you thought about it this way? So she gets to add a completely different point of view in the most respectful way possible without actually setting up, setting, setting up the conflict, which is a very, you know, very sophisticated way of putting a different point of view across. A hundred percent. And I think um, it's something that I actually explored in my second book, Killer Thinking. I talk a lot about creativity. And in creativity, when you're coming up with ideas, you have to learn to disagree nicely because you want to create a psychologically safe environment for people. And there's this difference between open language and closed language. And closed language is when someone is talking and you say, but that's wrong. Or you're saying no, or you're saying, I disagree with you. Or you are saying kind of this really almost aggressive closed language that automatically gets people closing off their mind. And instead of actually listening to you, they start thinking about how can they kind of argue back against with you. Um, And the opposite of that is something that you've suggested there that Sam Austin does, is open language. And open language doesn't mean that you just agree with somebody. It means that you are kind of using some of the tricks of psychology 
to make someone feel heard and validated, but twisting it a little bit. So open language is, oh, that's a really good point. What I actually, what I actually um, think um, that we can do better is this better here. Or taking, adding and onto someone's language, building on top of something that they said so they think that there's a, um, a level of kind of cooperation between, uh, between people. So there's a real, and it's, it's not about not disagreeing. This is not about, I kind of must be pointed out, this is not about kind of shirking and lying and pretending that you like other people's points of view. It's actually about just how you communicate with somebody. And another um, person that I have looked talked to in the past um, and someone who potentially maybe in my 20s I was more enamoured with um, this person, it was Oprah Winfrey, when she was running the Oprah show. I you know, used to watch it every day and kind of really... Um, subscribe to her way of thinking um, at the time. Um, I think my thinking and probably hers has evolved a little bit since then. But one thing I really remember that has stuck with me was that on her final show of her season, she had been doing the season for 25, 30 years or something. And she said that she'd been speaking to 30,000 people over that time. And she actually said that all 30,000 people had one thing in common. And I really found this fascinating. And she said that every single person that she spoke to, all they wanted at the end of the day was validation. They wanted someone to say, I see you, I hear you, and what you say matters to me. And I really think about that when I'm communicating with other people, particularly when I'm trying to disagree well with them. All that somebody wants is for you to just understand them, to hear what they have to say. You can then disagree with them, but if you can connect with them on a level that says, okay, I, I understand what you're trying to say and this is what I'm hearing is X, Y, and Z. Here's why I think we can improve it by doing blah, blah, blah. And I think that's how you disagree well with people. So, Tim, have you always done this well? Is it, I'm, let me put it another way. Were you really bad at this at some point in your, <laughs> in your career? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and in life. I think we kind of take some of these skills and I'm certainly not great at it. I, I, I'm getting better at it. And I think it's something that we're constantly getting better at. I think confidence plays a big part in it and experience because you have the ability to kind of back up your opinions. I think having healthy relationships, both at work and outside work, is something that constantly teaches me how to disagree well. Sometimes I disagree badly. <laughs> Sometimes emotion kind of gets in the way and I will arc up straight away and then think about it. But I think what I'm having now is the tools to be able to understand when the tools to be able to understand how to do it better. Um, and I think that's something that I'm constantly learning. I, I can remember many years early on in my career when I didn't know how to disagree well and my reaction to that was not saying anything. So I'd sit in a boardroom in a meeting and people would say something I really disagreed with and I kind of didn't have the confidence to be able to say anything. And so because I didn't have those tools, I would just be silent and just kind of sit there inside my own head, I would argue with them. And it took years of experience. It took confidence. It took practice. It took making mistakes. It took looking like an idiot. Um, it took feeling like an idiot in order to get over those. But it's like anything in life, it's a tool that you can practice. And the more you do it, you might start off small or disagreeing in some way, something that's going to, you know, not a life and death matter. And then before you know it, really, you're sitting there in board meetings, you're sitting there in big, important meetings with very high-powered people, and you can respectfully disagree in a way that is constructive. 
Can you recognise the signs in yourself that are a precursor to a disagreement? In other words, can you get that sense of the ego kicks in or the defensiveness kicks in or the rage, depending on, I don't think you've ever had rage, Tim, but um, I've certainly worked with people that have rage. Can you, and you recognise those signs, you know, before the disagreement, you've buggered it up because you're already halfway down a into a proper disagreement and you, before you can get back to yeah. to disagree well? <laughs> and that's such a great question. I love, I love that question. Recognising the, well, the signs are inside you because they happen internally before they become external. Yeah, they're emotions, right? They're, they're completely emotions. Yeah, and it's, it's, yes, of course, there's the signs of someone says something and there's a visceral reaction generally inside you to spurt out no, you idiot, that is completely wrong. What are you talking about? And I think getting older and wiser and leadership is learning to stop those emotions from emerging and allow you to process that internally. And one thing that I've been really exploring, thinking about for a while is this concept of listening to what someone is saying and hearing what they're saying because there's a huge difference between the two. And listening to what someone is saying is someone says something, you listen, you're formulating an opinion inside your head and you spurt something back and you're not actually going in and processing what they're saying. And I have many conversations with many people and many arguments where no one's actually listening to each other. They're kind of, they're, they're talking back and forward. But there's this big difference between listening and then hearing what someone's actually saying. And so hearing what someone is saying is listening to it, processing it internally, sitting with it for a while, sometimes being slower, sometimes not responding straight away, um, and then trying to respond without that emotional impact. Um, And that's something that I am constantly learning. I think everyone is constantly trying to figure that out. Um, But that's something that I'm really kind of interested in the moment, the the difference between listening and hearing. Yeah, the the guest before you, Margot Farachi, said, um, and she has had very big roles in big banks, everything from Macquarie to NAB, et cetera. And she said exactly the same thing about listening, but she said quite often you actually don't hear until, in her case, she meditates or she goes to starting to go to sleep and starts to play that conversation back. And a whole bunch of other things will occur to her about what the person she was talking to was trying to tell her, particularly when you're the boss boss, because... Some, they're quite often trying to tell you something without overstepping a boundary, betraying a confidence. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Re- reading between those lines um, and understanding the power dynamic that's at play in every conversation that you have. Sometimes you're the more senior person. Sometimes you're the subordinate. Sometimes you are at a, a customer service desk and there's a, you know, you're trying to get something from them and they're trying to get something else from you. There's always a power play going on. And I think that's really fascinating advice that her and I both aligned on this idea of just stepping away from it. Um, one really simple way that I like to think about that is an acronym that I call SIT, which is that you need to sit with something and sitting sp- stands for you need space, you need inputs, and you need time. So space is either a mental or physical kind of space away from it. Sometimes that can be five minutes, you know, when you're leaving the meeting, you're thinking about it. Um, inputs are other pieces of information coming into you. So it could be that you someone says something and you decide to research more on it to see if it's true. 
and then time is something that you just need often to sit with these things. Um, and time can be, as I said, five minutes or it can be five months until something comes and processes at 3 a.m. in the morning when, when you are trying to sleep and you realize that you should have said something better to that person about a conversation you had five months ago. talk a bit about the managing people like you advise if you can ever afford it or you've got the opportunity to work for yourself and not have to manage people and that is seriously spoken like someone who has set up their own business and worked very hard to build a business that they could sell tell me what about managing people challenged you because you're a people person you're someone that people loved working with and for it's one of your things right so but I want to understand it from your perspective, how you felt managing people. And I've just gone through quite a quite a rigorous process around pay reviews and promotions within my own organisation and had to do it in a much more mindful way than I'd previously done. And you would know why, because as a, te- as a, as a team gets bigger, there's more expectations, but less time to give people. So you know, it really was quite a, quite an exercise. So I'm interested to hear from your experience, what challenged you in managing people? Managing people is one of these strange things that no one really teaches you about. Hopefully, there's now there's platforms like Future Women to be able to teach people how to, how to manage people. But when I was, was starting out, I was... 20 years old, 21 years old, working full-time straight out of school in the mailroom of an ad agency. And all of a sudden, I got someone to manage underneath me who was older than me at the time. Um, I had no experience what it meant to manage somebody. I think I'd only really been managed by teachers or um, my parents. And you have to kind of all of a sudden thrown into it. And then you get one person to manage. And if you're half decent at that and don't completely screw it up, you get two people and you get five people. And then before you know it, there's dozens of people all looking up at you saying, what do we do? How do, where, where should we go? And it's one of these things that you just really have to learn on the job. And as part of that, there's a lot of mistakes that come when you manage people. And I think, I think one of the most important things is, one, learning from each of those mistakes and not repeating the same thing over and over again. But two, also just taking time to stop and think about this at a macro level. And that's something that I'm fortunate to do at the moment. So I joke that um, there's obviously this concept of inbox zero where you get your emails down to nothing. Um, and I'm currently in a stage of my life where I went from, we had about 60 or 70 full-time staff at Junkie. Um, and now I have a thing which I call staff zero, which is I have the number of staff that I manage down to zero. And that is really eye-opening because I can see the good things that I'm come from that, which is I have time to myself and I don't have to worry about anyone else. And then the bad things that come from that, which is I really enjoyed managing people and being part of something bigger than just myself. And I also love the camaraderie that comes from um, when you work all towards a common goal. There's obviously various ways that I'm still getting that. So I'm the chairman of a group called the Digital Publishers Alliance, which Future Women is a part of where we have a, a large group of 60 or so publishers and I get a real nice sense of camaraderie and um, leadership from that as well. But it is different than being down in the trenches on a day-to-day basis with other people all fighting for the same thing. 
one of the lessons that I have learned, um, and I've been writing my third book um, over the past year or so on the future of work. So a huge, important topic, trying to find a really interesting way through on particularly how work, the role that work plays in our life in a post-COVID world. So a lot of people are reassessing some of their relationships with work and a lot of people are looking at the tools that we have available to us now from remote working to hybrid working to flexible working and how that fits in with a work-life balance. And one of the topics I've been exploring in detail is, is burnout um, and how people burn out, why they burn out. And it's given me a lot of time for reflection on some of my own leadership lessons in that. When I was running a team, we had multiple staff that burnt out over the years. They worked really, really hard. They focused 100%. They were smart, intelligent people. And they just became physically and emotionally drained. And I was speaking to one of the leaders of burnout research in the world, a researcher called uh, Michael, Le Michael Leitner, um, who has written a couple of books with another researcher called Christina Maslach, who actually created a thing called the Maslach Burnout Index, which is used all around the world to determine the level that someone is burnt out. And I remember speaking to Michael and he gave me this analogy around the burnout and it just made me rethink how I approached it in a workplace. And the analogy that he gave was thinking about burnout like it was a canary in a coal mine. And when a canary starts to get sick, we kind of realize on a, on a you know, in an analogous level that it's a sign that something wrong with the coal mine and not with the actual canary. But when we think about it in a workplace and when we see someone who's burnt out, we tend to think of it generally as a problem with the worker and not with the workplace. And Michael kind of joked to me, and he said, you know, in this case, the canary doesn't need a long weekend. It just needs a better workplace. And I think about that a lot because in my case, when I had staff who were leading towards burnout, I would often approach it by trying to be sympathetic, trying to be understanding and saying, take some time off. You know, I'm here to support you. What do you need? And I thought that was what a good leader should do, kind of help and support the employee. Whereas what I realize now is what a good leader should do is actually look internally at myself, at the entire workplace, and try and figure out structurally what's wrong with the workplace rather than what's wrong with the worker. So you were pushing your team to the limit? Is that what you were doing? Yeah, in... in in retrospect, it was potentially asking too much of people of kind of, you know, at the, the time, this is, a, you know, this is many years ago in kind of a pre-COVID world when we were a agile, fast-moving startup that changed direction quite often, had to react to markets, had to think of new things. And I think that sometimes that is really hard and the expectations on the team are too much. And so it's a really fascinating lesson just to kind of think, think through that and think through what could I have done better. And were you working with them? So was part of the problem that actually you were working harder than they were? Or was part of the problem that you were unaware of how hard they were working and you were missing it because you were busy doing something else? Yeah, I think it was the latter. I always tried to model a really healthy life-work balance. I actually think um, myself and my business partner, Neil, we would 
leave the office every day at six o'clock. We would get in at nine, sometimes 9.30, kind of most mornings. Not that hours of work are the sole measure by which how hard somebody's working. But we would try and always model a healthy way of, of working. You know, sometimes it was obviously after hours, but most often not. Um, I think it was that I was generally probably too busy looking at other things, worrying about the business, worrying about cash flow, worrying about HR, legals, all those kind of things that you kind of take your eye off the ball of uh, helping employees work better and smarter and in a in a healthy way. So I think I think that's something, and that's probably common for a lot of smaller businesses where the people at the top kind of do everything. You have to figure out very quickly how to be a master of all trades. And that is from reading contracts, figuring out how to negotiate pay, figuring out how to do scales, all these kind of things. Helen, I can see you um, smiling and agreeing with this one right now. Well, I mean, it's just I mean, another one of your halftime lessons is, you know, if you if you knew what it took to start a business, you wouldn't do it. Like the only reason you do it is because you got no idea that correct? Like Oh yeah. contracts and finance and cash flow and you know, the moment there's privacy policy, what are we doing with the the data that we keep and that's shifted, you know, it just doesn't end and it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to be distracted by a myriad of problems. But I feel like we're going down a rabbit hole here and you and I sharing war stories of starting a business. <laughs> um, can I Can I bring you back to culture? Because I think one of the other thing that's pretty common in your books is about the importance of culture, and you've obviously given a lot of thought to that. One of the lines I really liked and has resonated with me greatly is, I feel the burden of culture. Like, I feel like the leader is the culture. And there's no doubt in my mind, after all of my experience in um, workplaces and of interviewing people, culture does breed from the top. You you can pretend you're not the person that's important to culture, but you're deluded if you think so, because you do set it. However, the line that really resonated is that everyone can take a, a play a role in culture. So if you're in, a, in an organisation, it doesn't matter what your age or stage, own your own contribution to the culture that you create around you. Can you expand on that a bit for me? Yeah, and I, I certainly agree with you that culture starts at the top and you can't outrun a bad leader. <laughs> Um, you know, you, your culture can't grow so great that it is better than the, you know, a leader who doesn't agree in it or who kind of is going in a different direction. However, one of the biggest learnings that I had through the years of running a business was that culture, as well as starting at the top, also starts at the bottom. It starts with every single person in the organization. And as soon as you realize that, I think it takes the pressure away from having to look up towards senior management to define what the culture is or how to make something better or change something. And it actually empowers everyone in an organization to have the responsibility of culture. And that's not a way of shirking responsibility. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. It should be a way of making people realize that if I am an account executive and I am just two years into a role, 
and I want to change something in my organization. I want to start a social club. I want to bring lunches in every day and get everyone to share lunches on the back table. I want to start yoga in the office on Thursday mornings. That should be the responsibility, the ability, the everyone should have the opportunity to be able to affect culture and be a part of culture in that way. And I think as soon as you realize that, it means that no matter how senior or junior you are in an organization, you have the ability to start things, to um, change the culture, to affect the culture. And that happens often in a positive way, sometimes in a negative way as well. But I think that there's looking towards the leaders to set a culture is starting to become a bit antiquated in kind of how to think about business. Um, And I think there's something really wonderful in thinking that everyone is part of the culture and everyone can affect the culture no matter what level you're at. Yeah, and when I read it in one of your newsletters, it really struck a chord because one of, I was talking to a, um, someone recently who's got a culture in their business of the email. So there's an email that goes out in which in that email, everyone is CC'd and someone is accused in nice words of being an idiot or doing something out of their lane or just being wrong. CC'd and, you know, and everyone sits around and reads that email. Someone, day or two later, writes back a tortured response, CC'd, you know. And I was I was pondering, like, how does that culture develop where vast numbers of highly paid people are all hanging on this email culture, which is actually not contributing to productivity at all, uh, doesn't reflect well on any of the people in the email cycle, and yet it's, it's built up as a perfectly acceptable way of expressing frustration inside an organisation. As the leader, of course, if I was running that company and I'm not, thankfully, you know, <laughs> there'd be like a morning meeting where we're not doing that anymore. If you don't like something, pick up the phone and have a chat. <laughs> but, you know, if I wasn't the leader, I would still probably be not buying into that. I'm not in that email. Take me out of it. I'm not going to have a bar of that. Completely. And I think that's where kind of, you know, a sense of personal responsibility comes into it as well. So you have two options if you're in that situation. One is waiting for your leader and you hope that a good leader like you, Helen, comes along and says, cut this bullshit, no more passive aggressive emails going around that everyone, you know, reads and then sends Teams messages to each other bitching about. Yeah. No no more of that. Yeah. Um, but That's on, half a day gone. Yeah. But on the same <laughs> token, it's up to every single person on that email can also make that decision without Helen having to step in. So every person on that email can decide, I'm not going to read it, I'm not going to send it, I'm not going to be a part of this, I'm going to take myself off it. Um, and if that happens at a collective way, then you don't need to wait for the leader to come down and make a decision to make the culture better. You every day can choose how to make your culture better. And anyone on that email chain should be able to either bring that up with a manager to stop it, remove themselves from it, or you know, if it's in a if it's a good environment, should feel empowered enough to say, this is not the way that I want to communicate. Can we stop these emails? I think the, the biggest lesson for me was as a leader, I sometimes felt there was pressure to be the culture all the time. And what I really wanted to do and what I really realized was that the culture is bigger than one person. Culture is everyone's responsibility in a really wonderful way. And I think that as soon as you as a leader empower everyone to realize that, you then have people starting soccer matches, 
you know, after work with their teammates and you have book clubs starting. And we used to have this really fun thing at Junkie. I don't know who started it in the very early days. We called it Lunch Club. And it was a um, it was every Friday, one whoever decided they wanted to be part of Lunch Club. And so we had maybe 15 people part of it. And every Friday, one person would cook. It started off as soup club, I believe, before it became lunch club. Let's say soup club because soup is relatively easy. One person would cook soup for 10 or 15 people in the group and kind of bring it in. And so one person would do that. And it really was a fun way because it meant that you cooked once and then every for 10 other Fridays you got food brought in for you. And it was really quite wonderful. And then it turned into like a fun competition where we rated people's foods and then it kind of turned a little bit too much because someone came in one time and their, their soup was a pineapple coconut soup, but they decided to serve it in pineapples. So they cut the pineapples in half and they served the soup. And then the week after that, someone was like, oh, well, they've brought a pineapple in. I'm going to therefore serve mine in a, bring in this fine china. And someone brought fine china in. It then became a little bit too much of a competition. We ended up killing it because it kind of evolved out of the purpose of which it was designed for. Humans. And that's a really nice example for me, yeah. But a nice example, though, of that was someone's idea. I don't even remember whose idea it was. It wasn't my idea. A really fun thing that worked for six months and everyone had this really lovely time. And then once it starts evolving and stops serving its purpose and becomes a bit too competitive, we just stopped it. And everyone just decided, oh, let's just stop doing that next week. And we stopped doing it. And then someone else came up with something else. Um, a salad club, I think it was, and you brought in salads for people. So just a really nice example, though, of, you know, that was a real part of our culture for a period of time. And I'm sure if I speak to anyone who worked at the company at the time, they might they don't remember the emails. <laughs> they don't remember um, the work they did. They remember sitting there on a Friday and having soup out of half a pineapple. <laughs> it sounds very junky. <laughs> you also, um, it reminds me that you also you write about leading from the middle and um, and that, you know, that obviously is something that really is comfortable with your leadership style of, of leading from the middle of an organisation rather than from the top. How would you describe your leadership style? Yeah, lead from this middle is this, lead from the middle is a really interesting concept that I deduced from speaking to dozens of people for my first book, Cult Status. I spoke to all of these leaders that were building really strong communities and tried to figure out what they all have in common. And lead from the middle is a really simple concept that instead of leading from the front, which is quite a militaristic almost way of leading where you, you know, are kind of like a general in front and there's an army behind you. And then the other opposite of that is leading from behind, which is an idea that people like Nelson Mandela do where they talk about leadership as he's like a shepherd kind of herding a flock of people, you know, very softly, softly. And lead from the middle instead is this concept where you have a combination of the two and you have a really clear vision and a really clear why behind what you're doing and where you want to get to. But you then step back a little bit, you're in the middle of the crowd and you let everyone that you're leading get there. Sometimes that can be staff members, sometimes that can be community of customers, sometimes it could be suppliers. But you have to therefore give up a little bit of control because other people might find a different path there, but they're all going to the same place. And occasionally you need to kind of make sure that the direction is the same. Um, and that's a leadership model that I love and I try to lead by. And so part of that is just making sure that everyone is super clear on where you're going. 
I'm a huge believer in simplicity. If there's one thing in my life that will probably be on my headstone, hopefully it's a couple of very simple, short words. It is just making things really easily understood. And I actually think that's one of the hardest things to do is to make things really easily understood. And the same goes in leadership and in strategy and in where you're going as a company and company values. If they can't be easily understood by every single person in your organization and repeated and remembered, then there's no point in even having them. And that is a, a part of leading from the middle of making sure that everyone knows, everyone can repeat exactly where they're going, why they're going there. So your purpose is really simple, your strategy is really simple, and then step back a little bit and let people actually just get on with it and get there. One last question for you, and it's without notice, so I hope it's not too tricky, but you you started a business with a friend in Junkie, in Neil. How did you f- navigate that relationship over time? There's a lot of pressure, and you talked about the cash flow problem and you you would have hit periods of time where you didn't know how you're going to pay your staff and you would have hit periods where you had elation and then, of course, the sale process. How did you navigate that personal relationship? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And in fact, the first website that I co-founded was called Same Same in 2006 and that was myself and three friends. So there was originally four of us in the business. Neil was one of them um, and there was two other co-founders there at the time and the three of them had started a business called In The Mix before that, which was a dance music website. So I came on board as the fourth person in an already um, existing, semi-complicated, complex relationship. And then four founders, co-founders of a business and uh, trying to figure their way through is a, is a lot. Um, and as part of that process, the two original co-founders left the business and Neil and I then ended up running what the time was called Sound Alliance before we even launched Junkie in 2013. This is around 2011. So there was a lot in that, a lot of a lot of good parts about starting businesses with your friends in that it's fun and you have similar interests and there's a lot of unknowns and you're figuring shit out together. And then there's a lot of really, really complicated parts. Some of the biggest lessons are that people's skill sets are great for different stages of running a business. Some people are really great at getting things off the ground, but just don't love managing people once it gets up to a certain size. Some people are good at managing people, but are really crap at getting things off the ground. So we had to navigate the skill sets of each of the people. Then we had to navigate a essentially a breakup of um, a business and personal relationships when two founders left the business and Neil and I then took control, then Neil and I had to figure out how do you reinvigorate something that had been around for a long time that was feeling a bit stale and needed some new life and energy into it. And over the years, our relationships, then Neil and I were then running what then became, we launched Junkie together in 2013 and then ran it for another almost eight or nine years together. And there were mainly ups, not many downs. And I mean that. I think you have to find somebody. It's like a marriage. I think I think I spent more time with my business partner than I have with my husband. And it is like a marriage and you need to learn how to disagree well. You need to learn what your strengths and weaknesses are. We both very quickly realized that each of us were 
stronger in other areas. And so we we kind of divided up the list of responsibilities of running a business. Um, we also divided up, we had a bunch of really high-end clients at the end, like American Express and Netflix and Westpac and Qantas. And we essentially divided up those based on personality types, based on interest. So we both kind of ended up managing the top key client relationships, essentially ourselves. So yeah, there was there was a lot in figuring out how to communicate with each other, how to know when someone's in a bad mood and just let them be, how to know when somebody needs a bit of help through personal and professional ups and downs. Yeah, I think starting a business with somebody is one of the best things and also one of the hardest things you can do. And learning to disagree well. And learning what? Sorry, learning how to disagree well. Learning how to disagree well. There's there's many times when the two of us would have very intense, and it wasn't just the two of us, we had other people involved. We had um, particularly a, a great guy called Tony Four, who was an investor, um, who was the... Uh, chairman of the company who came in and the three of us would have many, many long discussions around strategy, around disagreements, around two of us taking, not taking sides, but two of us versus one person and how to figure out that dynamic. And that I think is probably where I started to hone some of the confidence to be able to argue well, discuss well, compromise, debate, um, all those things that are really important. Tim Duggan, thank you very much for joining the Leadership Podcast today. I know you've got to get through a busy uh, round of emails and then get to the Mediterranean. So I'm going to let you go. But uh, an absolute privilege to chat leadership with you. I'm a huge admirer of you as an individual, but also of your work. So thanks for taking the time today. Thank you, Helen. I've loved it. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.